This is Vicki Iden and Paul Herman with your local news, coming to you live from WRT Studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Associated Press reports that the Wisconsin Republican Party has filed lawsuits against the mayor of Milwaukee and Governor Evers for public records. Both suits are related to issues under debate in the election to be held in six weeks. The suit against Mayor Cavalier Johnson is for communication records between the city of Milwaukee and a nonpartisan advocacy group, uh, Milwaukee Vote 2022. The request for records was made two weeks ago. Bill Luters, the director of the Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council, said that it is not uncommon for it to take more than two weeks to get public records. A spokesperson for the city said that they expect the documents to take just a few more days to be delivered. The lawsuit against Evers is for communication records between his office and the director of the Veterans Home. State GOP Representative Brian Steele, who represents the district containing the home, has long been critical of the treatment of veterans at the facility. If you watch television at all, you will not be surprised to learn that the Wisconsin governor's race is the biggest spending contest in the U.S. According to a report from WKOW, Republican candidate Tim Michaels personally spent $5 million on his campaign in September. In the same period, the Evers campaign raised $4.5 million. Although Evers has much more cash in the bank, Michaels can rely upon his own personal fortune. Michaels is a co-owner of the largest construction business in the state. He spent $12 million to fund his primary campaign. As of last week, $55 million was spent on TV advertising in the governor's race. The Evers campaign and its allied organizations spent $38 million, and Michaels spent $17 million. A UW student group filed a lawsuit yesterday contending that absentee ballots should be counted even if they have only partial addresses of the witness form, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Earlier this month, a Waukesha County judge ruled that any omission or error on the form cannot be corrected by election clerks. The lawsuit argues that ballots should not be disqualified because of small errors or omissions, such as an incorrect zip code or leaving out the state. About 7% of all absentee ballots contain some kind of minor error. The plaintiffs stated that the Federal Civil Rights Act prohibits the state from denying any person the right to vote as the result of failure to comply with a requirement that is not material to the voters' qualifications. The case was filed in Dane County and is against the State Elections Commission and Madison Clerk Maribeth Witzel-Bell. Madison Alder Syed Abbas has announced he will not seek re-election in the upcoming spring elections. Abbas represents the 12th district on the north side. Abbas served as president during the COVID-19 pandemic and has been a member of the council since 2019. Abbas had previously run in the Democratic primary for the state's 46th assembly seat, where he came in second. And those were your local news headlines. Yesterday, leaders of Madison's teacher union penned a letter to County Executive Joe Parisi asking for the study to look into how the noise will impact area schools. WRT producer Nate Wedgehout has the details. The union representing Madison's teachers is calling on county officials to conduct a more robust study of the noise impacts that the incoming F-35s will have on area students. 
The letter, sent by leaders of Madison Teachers, Inc., or MTI, was addressed to County Executive Joe Parisi, who did not respond to WORT's request for comment by airtime. On top of calling for a larger study on the noise impacts of the F-35s, the letter also calls for more noise measuring and abatement measures for area schools. The airport is currently working to update their noise compatibility plan, which will give a more accurate view of the noise levels surrounding the airport. The study, which is scheduled to be completed in winter of 2024, does not include any research into the health effects and impacts noise has on children's health or hearing. The letter points to several studies that show a link between airport noise and decreased learning in school children. One study from a pediatrician in Vermont found that children who live near F-35 jets see decreased reading skills and attention spans and increased risks for anxiety, depression, and aggressive behaviors. Jeff Knight is the executive director of MTI. He says that he wrote the letter after he was approached by Safe Skies Clean Water, a nonprofit coalition against the F-35s coming to Madison. Well, and doing some research, we learned that there, you know, there is some evidence that noise, you know, that kind of noise pollution can interfere with uh, with learning. And so uh, the request was, you know, would we be willing to, you know, a- ask that that be included in any study about the, the noise, you know, that will be created by the new jets? And I guess there's a, there's a study that has to be done because of the, the, the changeover and um, that they want that study to include. Uh, and we agree, our, certainly our board of directors voted, you know, on this as well. Uh, they, we agree that there should be some consideration of the schools and how that will be, how they will be impacted. MTI is asking County Executive Parisi and the Dane County Airport to take the many schools that sit within five miles of the Dane County Regional Airport into consideration when they update their noise compatibility plan. These measures include extending the study area from three miles around the airport to five miles, studying the noise impacts on all schools on the northeast side of Madison, and studying if low-income families families and families of color would be disproportionately subjected to the noise. Additionally, the letter asks for noise abatement measures to be included for area schools. MTI is calling for a flight tracking system on both commercial and Air National Guard planes so that they can see what planes are flying over schools, and to install noise monitoring systems in the schools near the airport. These noise monitoring systems would allow the schools to accurately monitor noise levels within the school. While the current plan would use computer monitoring to predict noise levels, it would not include any actual noise measuring. Finally, MTI is asking for all schools on the northeast side to have noise abatement improvements made at the school. The letter includes making sure that these schools have air conditioning systems in place. Knight says that while air conditioning may sound unrelated to cutting the noise, it could actually help. The part about air conditioning is that if you don't have uh, schools that can be sealed up when the weather is hot, that the noise is going to be louder. Uh, and and that that by itself is an abatement measure. Um, so you know that's and that, and that we'd like to have that considered as part of as part of the, any plan going forward. Steve Klofka with Safe Skies Clean Water says that the entire process of the airport study is not nearly enough to give Northside residents an accurate picture of what the noise levels will be at the airport. I knew last spring they had one open house to discuss the procedures, and it seemed like it was going to be a very limited study doing as little as possible, as little as the FAA would require them to do. And so it really wouldn't tell us much about the impacts of the noise. 
Um, in fact, they would do far less than the Air Force had done when they wrote their environmental impact statement. Knight says that, at the end of the day, he just hopes the county takes their concerns into consideration. You know, that, that really takes a step back and say, hey, wait a minute, is there evidence that this is, you know, that this could impact our schools? And is there evidence that it could impact our schools with kids from uh, low-income families or families of color? And, and that if, if that's not taken into consideration, that's, that's just sort of another, again, it's another form of environmental racism. The letter was also sent to Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, the Madison School Board, and Airport Director Kimberly Jones, all of whom did not respond to WORT's request for comment by airtime. According to the final environmental impact statement released by the U.S. Air Force in 2020, replacing the existing F-16 jets at Truax Airfield with F-35 jets will not come quietly. While the impact statement showed that around 2,700 people would be subjected to an average sound level of around 65 decibels, or around the volume of a vacuum, the report did not showcase how low the jets would be when landing or takeoff. A 2012 environmental impact statement for F-35s coming to Vermont says that the noise level for an F-35 on takeoff is around 115 decibels, louder than a car horn and a rock concert, and just quieter than a siren. The F-35s are set to touch down at Truex Airfield next year. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. A recent survey by a group of Wisconsin educators shows that black employees are severely underrepresented in leadership positions in private businesses, municipal governments, and schools. For more on the story, here's WORT reporter Andy Barrow. A new report finds that employers in the Madison area are routinely failing to hire or promote black people to leadership positions. Because of this, black workers in Madison have ended up in lower-paying and less professionally rewarding jobs than their non-black counterparts. Using publicly available data and surveys, researchers from the African-American Jewish Friendship Group of Madison studied 178 businesses, municipal governments, schools, and other organizations in the greater Madison area to find out how many African-Americans they employed and what jobs those employees were working. Here's Dr. Bruce Tomodson an emeritus professor of medical physics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and one of the authors of the report. He says that although many of the surveyed organizations employ black workers, very few have African Americans in leadership roles. There are some bright spots, such as, the, uh, such as Dane County and a few of the, the school boards. But overall, if you look at the picture in the Madison area, you just aren't finding African-Americans in uh, numbers that are compatible with the percentage of African-Americans in the Madison population in the executive and administrative roles. In fact, many of the organizations the group surveyed employed no black managers or executives at all. I was surprised that in so many of the employment categories, the median was zero. That implies more than half of the businesses or whichever organizations you're looking at had no African-Americans in most of the categories. The situation in the greater Madison area's public schools is very similar. Out of the 10 school districts they looked at, all employ black teachers at a disproportionately low rate, in comparison to the 6.5% of the Madison population who are black. Meanwhile, five school districts within Dane County have no black teachers at all as of last year. 
Those findings track with other disparities for black people in Dane County, from health outcomes to finding housing to other basic services. And these findings are just the latest to illustrate structural racism in the Madison community. The Race to Equity report, released almost a decade ago in 2013, found that alarming racial discrimination can be used to plague Dane County across education, healthcare, housing, and many other areas. While Madison is consistently cited as one of the best cities to live in overall, nearly three-quarters of black children in Dane County live in poverty. Black families in Dane County are also much less likely to have access to reliable services like water and heating than white families. The group also looked at whether having a plan to increase diversity, equity, and inclusion made a difference in hiring practices. The first thing we saw that stood out is that in public schools, the existence of the plan had absolutely no correlation with uh, having higher or lower fraction of African Americans in the different positions, the administrative, the teachers, the professionals, the non-professionals, total employees. This was also true in businesses with diversity statements, but not municipal governments. The report doesn't talk about the cause of this inequality, but Dr. Tomodson surmised that past and present discrimination play a role. Just looking at the results of the survey, the fact that we see this one group of people that seem to be excluded entirely from a lot of the opportunities appears to be uh, due to the cause that uh, people are basing hiring and in promotions on race. We can't say that's causal. We can say that there's a relationship there. The study came with support from minority-based and social service organizations, including the Urban League of Greater Madison and United Way of Dane County, as well as the Madison Mayoral Office. And the team of researchers has more work ahead, turning their focus next toward research on the role of race in mortgage applications. Uh, a lot of what's going on has is being done quietly because our goal isn't to punish. Our goal is to try to open dialogue and work with all the aspects of the community to just try and bring about positive change. Reporting for WORT, this has been Andy Barrow. Time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WRT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm Paul Herman, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for joining us here on the 6 p.m. local news. From now until the end of October, Rock County is running a fall fun challenge throughout its park system. On this week's archival edition of Parks and Landmarks, feature contributor Sean Bull reports from his favorite of those parks. Magnolia Bluff. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. Rock County is... boring. Wait, hold on. I'm not wrong, but what I mean in this case is that its interesting topography is spread out unevenly. Wisconsin's Southern Gateway is a flat, rectangular slab of land with minimal lakes or hills. The main thing it has going for it is the rock, 
Wisconsin's second longest river, not counting the Mississippi, bisecting the county right down the middle north-south. But beyond the river valley, there are a few unexpected gems. My absolute favorite of these is Magnolia Bluff Park. Magnolia Bluff is a county park on Rock County's edge, a few miles southwest of Evansville. Most of the park is dominated by its namesake, a sandstone bluff with a harder limestone cap. This limestone and the surrounding hardwood forest anchor the sandstone, slowing its erosion to a minimum. This results in sharp drop-offs, exposing brilliant orange sand between bushes and wild grass. But little of this is visible from a distance. From the road, Magnolia Bluff looks like any other forested southern Wisconsin hill. Even driving in, the first thing that might impress you is the scale of the parking lot, rather than the bluff rising above. For what it's worth, the infrastructure here is pretty nice for a county park. Magnolia Bluff's lower lot is downright spacious, providing room for maybe 30 cars. The driveway then slopes gently up the hill, winding up to the top, where a second lot has room for a dozen more. One might think that so much pavement is wasted on the few thousand residents of nearby Evansville and Broadhead. I can think of a few parks which are much more popular and only have half this space for automobiles. But all this asphalt has a couple key benefits. First, Magnolia Bluff is one of the most handicap-accessible parks of its size. You can see most of what the park has to offer from a wheelchair, which is a pretty rare distinction. Secondly, it's nice to have extra spots for a busy day when people have to park their trailers. Like many rural parks, Magnolia Bluff offers trails for horses, and it's one of the more unique equestrian tracks in the area. Most local horse trails feature prairies, but these are almost entirely through woods. I've never ridden, but I imagine it's an entirely different vibe when you compare riding grassy trails to being shaded under an oak and hickory canopy. Your mental self-image goes from Old West Cowpoke, I think, to Robin Hood and his merry band. Of course, you're only afforded the luxury of such daydreams if you're on horseback, and presumably going fast enough to avoid the local mosquitoes. On foot, in the summer, these trails are not remarkable enough to warrant spraying up for a hike. Picnics are the purview of pedestrians at Magnolia Bluff. The park provides one of the prettiest backgrounds around for such an event. At the end of the blufftop parking lot, a gravel path leads past dozens of towering black oaks. Underneath this leafy ceiling, a mowed mat of grass underpins a scattering of picnic tables and park-issue charcoal grills, each sitting at the ready on a single iron post. This shady plateau continues for some hundred yards, narrowing to a point at the far end. It's at this point that the south and west edges of the bluff break away, revealing the orangey-yellow sand beneath. Though this ledge offers a commanding view of the farmland to the west, you'd be forgiven for not realizing you're standing near the highest point in Rock County. Some point on top of the bluff, probably farther back by the horse trails, rises 178 feet above the surrounding plains. 178 feet does sound like a lot, but for those of you more familiar with Madison, the hill at Elver Park nowhere near the highest point in Dane County, is four and a half feet taller. The Wisconsin State Capitol building, though man-made, is still over a hundred feet taller than that. If you want to feel on top of the world, and sheer elevation is all that matters to you, 
Magnolia Bluff won't do much to impress. No matter how you measure, it won't even crack the top 40 highest points in the state. But everything's relative, isn't it? And unless you're a cartographer, hills are measured by emotional impact as much as their actual difference from the surrounding land. This is where Magnolia Bluff succeeds. Honey-colored sand pops against kinds of foliage you won't find for miles around. You're high up enough to see into the next county, but you could look down three feet, and that's interesting too. In an area of the state that's fairly homogeneous, Magnolia Bluff is a breath of fresh, if slightly elevated, air. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's S-E-A-N dot B-U-L-L at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. And we go now to the last week of September 1969, when anti-war radicals bombed the National Guard Armory, former Packers coach Vince Lombardi becomes a rich man, and the school board supports sex education. Stu Levitan has the news from 53 years ago this week on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, the last week of September, 1969. When the Dane County Sheriff announced a month-long training program in riot control for 300 lawmen from 20 county municipalities, some worried that anti-war radicals would seek to disrupt the program. At a quarter to three in the morning of September 26th, their fears are realized as a bomb between 15 and 20 sticks of dynamite with a timing device explodes at the National Guard Armory on Wright Street, ripping through steel and sending the armory door flying 40 yards into the drill hall, where it damages gear assembled for the training. The explosion, which occurs about an hour after a similar explosion damaged the federal building in downtown Milwaukee, does about $25,000 in damage and forces the exercise to be moved to the shooting range in Verona. In a possibly related development, Madison police will become the highest paid of any city in Wisconsin and the highest paid in the nation for cities of comparable size outside California, as the council approves a two-year contract bringing patrolmen with three-and-a-half-year service to an even $10,000 on New Year's Day 1970. The contract also improves several fringe benefits, including providing double pay for all hours in excess of 12 in a shift, something happening with increasing frequency due to protests on campus and at the Capitol. In a definitely related development, serious crime in Madison is up 9%, primarily in larceny, auto theft, and aggravated assault. This, while Milwaukee and Wisconsin's other large cities report that crime is dropping. Echoing comments made earlier this year by Police Chief Wilbur Emery, Captain Stanley Davenport attributes the increase to, quote, the liberal attitudes of the courts, 
particularly the willingness by local judges to sentence offenders to probation. Draft resistor Ken Vogel, under federal indictment for failing to report for induction into the armed services, declares victory and leaves the first congregational church 12 days after he took sanctuary there. At night, a motion to censure the ministers and executive council for allowing Vogel and scores of his supporters to stay in the chapel is defeated, 193 to 174. A motion that it's the church's right, quote, to provide comfort and counsel to anyone who comes to us is adopted, 215 to 170. Civil rights and peace activist Helen Vukalik, a member of the executive council and wife of radio personality and author George Vukalik, calls the vote an endorsement of leadership's actions. But church moderator William Bradford Smith is not happy. He resigns over what he says is immoral behavior by some of Vogel's supporters, including boys and girls sleeping under the same blanket. A prominent Republican attorney, former Westside Alder and former congressional candidate, Smith seems to think couples were being intimate, but all have been fully clothed and behaving properly. Smith calls Vogel, quote, a criminal and a fugitive, but says he respects his sincerity. Smith and his wife Betty, chair of the Governor's Commission on the Status of Women, have a son in Vietnam. Vogel returns to the church to watch the meeting, then marches over to the Resistance House, 211 Langdon Street, with about 50 supporters to await what he presumes will be his imminent arrest. Another church also makes news by taking a political stand. As Father James Grappi's welfare protest approaches the city, the Parish Council of Blessed Sacrament Catholic Church, 2131 Rowley Avenue, votes to welcome marchers to Madison by setting up a hundred cots in its basement and school and providing an evening and morning meal. It was the least we could do for the cause, one parishioner says. Mayor William Dykes' special three-man panel investigating the Mifflin Street block party riots earlier this year finally issues its report, blaming both sides and pleasing neither. The greatest factor in causing the confrontations and disorders, it finds, was, quote, the underlying antagonism which existed between Mifflanders and the police. The fact that residents knew that police had allowed the, quote, more conventionally dressed students of the Langdon-Gilman Street area to have a block party just the week before added to the prevailing belief of unfair discrimination. Police Chief Emery testified his policy is to respond immediately with overwhelming force, even before it's needed as a deterrence. But that first Saturday in May, the report indicates it might have been a provocation. While finding that police, quote, did not resort to the use of tear gas until they had been pelted with missiles, the commission still implicates police policy in the Mifflin riot. Quote, the second additional precipitating factor was the bringing of police attired in riot gear into the Mifflin Street area before there had been any actual violence. Once the violence began, the report states, quote, training proved inadequate in the case of certain few officers who during the disorders engaged in beatings, improper use of riot sticks, and indiscriminate and improper use of tear gas. More and better training in this field is needed. A citizens group issues its own report warning that, quote, Madison has cause for concern over the serious rift that exists between youth and police. 
the mayor and city council take it all under advisement. Madison developers David and James Carley promised former Green Bay Packers coach Vince Lombardi he would become a rich man if he agreed to become chairman of the board of their development company, Public Facilities. This week, he does. As a company Public Facilities recently merged with, Shoals Homes, agrees to be bought by Inland Steel for $80 million. Based on their stock holdings, the Carleys will share about $11.6 million, while Lombardi will receive $1.9 million. The school board takes a stand in favor of sex education, directing Superintendent Douglas Ritchie to testify against an assembly bill that would all but ban teaching it in the public schools. The bill, which would permit only, quote, the traditional teaching of physiology, biology, and physical hygiene, has already passed the assembly and is set for a Senate hearing. It's the greatest week ever for Madisonians who love the blues. B.B. King and Buddy Rich, back-to-back at Mother Blues, the former DJs out East Washington Avenue at the Interstate. Howlin' Wolf, Richie Havens, and Luther Allison at the two-day UW Folk Rock Festival at the Fieldhouse and Union Theater. And at Marsh Shapiro's Nitty Gritty, Super Blues Week brings two nights of Otis Spahn, four nights of Charles Musselwhite, and two more nights of the hard-working Luther Allison. Admission to all those performances, only a dollar. And that's this week's Madison the 60s for your award-winning, blues-loving, listener-supported WRT News Team. I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show. Hey, thank you, Jade and Catherine, for cheering us on and supporting WORT by pledge wrapping. And thank you to all of you who are cheering on WORT and supporting us through your donations. We really use every dollar and truly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6 p.m. Monday through Thursday nights. Your headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Your reporter tonight was Andy Barrow. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Thank you to our pledge rappers this evening, Jade Isiri Ramos and Catherine Garvins. Engineer Chuck Kateman engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Weggie helped produce this broadcast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. And I'm your host, Paul Herman. Thank you to all of you who called in for your pledge in support of this hour. You make it happen. Up next is Query. Good night. <laughs>